Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. My name is Alex Brubaker. I'm the manager here at the Scholar. Thank you for joining us in Harrisburg this evening. If it's your first time here, please take an events newsletter up at the cafe counter, uh, and please stay tuned to our social media pages and website for updates on future events. We have a full list of authors and programs already in the works for 2020, so stay in the loop uh, with some exciting upcoming announcements in the next couple months. Now tonight, we are honored to host an author and journalist who used to call Harrisburg home, Stephen Freed. Stephen is an award-winning journalist and best-selling author who teaches at Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism and the University of Pennsylvania. His books include Thing of Beauty, Bitter Pills, The New Rabbi, Husbandry, and Appetite for America, Fred Harvey and the Business of Civilizing the Wild West One Meal at a Time. He was also co-author with former Congressman Patrick Kennedy, A Common Struggle. A two-time winner of the National Magazine Award, he has written for Vanity Fair, Glamour, The Washington Post Magazine, GQ, Smithsonian, Rolling Stone, Parade, and Philadelphia Magazine. Freed lives in Philadelphia with his wife, author Diane Ayers. His latest book, which we are here for tonight, is called Rush, Revolution, Madness, and the Visionary Doctor Who Became a Founding Father. A finalist for the George Washington Book Prize, Rush has been called fascinating, superb, and masterful by various media outlets. We are thrilled that Stephen has taken the time out of his busy schedule to visit Harrisburg. So please join me in welcoming Stephen Freed to the stage. Uh, thank you very much, Alex. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for having this store. Although when I see this store, um, which was the Boston store when I was a kid, um, it actually makes me fear that um, if this store had been here, I might not have left town. Um, in which case, I would be giving you a talk about furniture. Um, which is my family's business, which I probably would have ended up in. So thank you very much. Um, I'm going to take this off because I know where this is going. Hello. And uh, so I'm here to talk to you a little bit about Benjamin Rush. Does anybody know much about Ben? Anybody know who Benjamin Rush is? Diane, you're my wife. You edited the book. You, of course, know. So hopefully you'll learn a little bit more about Benjamin Rush, sort of the lost, Pennsylvania's lost founder. Um, there has been, um, in the last year, uh, a lot of new interest in Benjamin Rush, um, even among the founding fathers who were always afraid that somebody would actually do a book about him uh, that would include everything that Benjamin Rush knew about them. Uh, I got interested in Benjamin Rush um, partly because of geography. Um, when I switched from writing only journalistic books to doing history books, I realized that, um, I mean, we live about three, six blocks from Independence Hall and I knew almost nothing about uh, the founding of the country that you don't learn in 10th grade history. I, don't, I hope my 10th grade history teacher is not here. Um, if so, I apologize. Um, and so I started looking for characters that might allow me to write about the founding fathers. And uh, a lot of the better known ones had been taken. And uh, what I knew about Benjamin Rush uh, was very little, uh, except I cover mental health. And um, in mental health, Benjamin Rush is considered the founding father of American psychiatry. But when you ask a psychiatrist why, they usually have no possible, no real idea. What I did know was that his picture was on the tote bag of the American Psychiatric Association, um, which I got one of these uh, covering their convention one year in the 1990s. This is mine. It hangs in my office. Um, generally, I don't pick books um, based on tote bags. Um, and I don't recommend uh, five-year projects that are inspired by tote bags. But this one actually worked out pretty well. Um, what I found out when I started looking at a rush as a possible way into the American Revolution was a couple things. Um, first, um, he hadn't been written about very much, and the books that had been written about him you would really never read on purpose. Um, and if you were assigned them, you might not read them either. 
Um, uh, but also, you know, from just uh, from his life, um, his his life, if covered properly, spanned everything about the American Revolution, from the very first inklings of it in the 1760s. Uh, Rush was one of the people who uh, co-authored the edict that, that led to the Boston Tea Party, all the way through the Revolutionary War, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, all through the War of 1812. So he really was a great tour guide through all of this. Um, and very little had been paid attention about what he had written about it. It was almost like uh, another camera had been running during the entire American Revolution and no one had ever uh, processed the film for it. Um, I found out that he was not only the, the founding father of American psychiatry, but he was also the founding father of American psychology, clinical psychology, um, and addiction care. And um, he was one of the first people to write about uh, mental illness and addiction being a medical problem and not uh, just a problem of failure of will or failure of religious belief, which was the belief at the time. I could also see that much of his story had been suppressed for a really long time. There's a reason that you didn't learn much about him in school, and there's a reason that he's not uh, as well known as his fellow founders, all of whom considered him to be one of their uh, equals. Um, and it wasn't just because you know Hamilton came out and beat him to the American musical. Um, the, the family um, had actually suppressed the story, as had his two closest friends among the founders, John Adams and, uh, and Thomas Jefferson, uh, because Rush was sort of the founder who knew too much. He was uh, their friend, he was their confidant, he was kind of their therapist, and uh, there were incredible numbers of very personal letters that the founding fathers were very afraid when Rush died uh, would get out. So his story was suppressed for over 100 years for a variety of reasons, which makes him a really good person to write about now. So um, I started learning about Benjamin Rush. Um, there's a handful of images of Rush. None of them look like the same person, so it's a little hard to get a handle on what he looked like. Um, uh, we do know that he, um, we especially pay attention to him young, though, because Rush is always described, first of all, as very good-looking, a bit of a babe magnet, um, although his family, because uh, his medical uh, uh, education cost so much, told him that he could not marry until the age of 30. Um, so we actually know a lot about his love life from all the women that he couldn't marry, uh, his love letters to them and all that, which you don't usually find out about a founder. Um, he had a very high forehead, a very big forehead, which people almost co always commented on, like he had so many ideas they were bursting out of his head. This is the youngest picture of him. We found this during the research. It's actually like this big. Um, and so we started getting a handle on what he looked like. And then I found this portrait of him, which is actually hanging in one of the Rush family uh, living rooms. Uh, this is a priceless portrait that was once shown at the Smithsonian. I don't think you're supposed to hang portraits like this over an active fireplace. Um, if you have any priceless art at home, really don't do this. Um, but that's where we found it, and then we turned it into the cover of the book. Um, this uh, image also became the model for um, the first statue that was ever made of a doctor in Washington. It was donated by the American Medical Association to Teddy Roosevelt, and it was a statue of Rush that was based on this painting. So. Rush, Rush's career is ridiculously jam-packed. The first year I worked on this book, I had nine Penn students who worked with me on this, and we just broke down everything that he had done, everything that he had written. Um, we ended up with a 49-page single-space document of everything we thought we should write about. This is just like the greatest hits up through 1776 when he signs the Declaration, one of the youngest people who signed at the age of 30. Um, but he, uh, he went on to become a full-time physician. He was the first professor, one of the first professors in the nation's first medical school. He was just generally sort of an inconvenient truth-teller uh, for the revolutionary period. And um, so 
we just tried to figure out like how do you tell this story? It's so massive. There's so many people involved. Um, Rush started out at, at getting medical training. At that time, you didn't have to go to medical school to be a doctor. So you apprenticed with a doctor. He apprenticed after uh, school with uh, Dr. Redman, who's a prominent doctor in Philadelphia. And then uh, the two guys in the middle, John Morgan at the top and William Shippen at the bottom, uh, came back from their studies in Europe and started the first medical school in America at the university, at what became the University of Pennsylvania. These were Rush's two mentors, and Rush grew up um, with the unfortunate situation of his mentors being tour mentors. Um, they hated each other's guts. Um, they wanted Rush to choose between them, and no matter what he did, he was kind of screwed. What they were fighting about was something unbelievably ridiculous. Um, John Morgan announced that he was starting the medical school himself and hiring William Shippen as the first professor, not that they were starting the school together. So they fought over this credential their entire lives. Um, this may not seem such a big deal, but not only were they fighting in Philadelphia, but they were the two doctors who ran the military hospitals for George Washington during the Revolutionary War, and they fought about this all during the Revolutionary War, to the point where George Washington said, like, I can't believe what jerks Philadelphia doctors are. Um, shouldn't they be paying more attention to their um, patients? And I think Rush, uh, because these two doctors were kind of driving crazy, decided to go to medical school in Europe. It's at that time uh, the best medical schools at the University of Edinburgh, so he went there. Um, he met Ben Franklin, who he was actually neighbors with but had never known as a young man, in London. And uh, while he was in medical school, Franklin wrote him letters of introduction to basically every writer who was still living who he had studied uh, in high school. Rush had gone to a prep school, and then he went to Princeton. He graduated from Princeton at the age of 15. Um, so he was quite brilliant. And he had all these amazing experiences besides going to medical school, meeting Samuel Johnson and David Hume and all these people that you, whose names you have to learn for tests and history books. Um, he uh, was a student there of William Cullen, and then he came back. This is uh, obviously Franklin. Um, this is uh, the famous uh, dinners that the, these guys had every, every, week, every month. Um, Hume and jo Johnson and um, all the great thinkers of, of London, which Rush got to go to. He came back in 1769 to set up as a doctor uh, and become a professor at the new medical school. This is what uh, Pennsylvania Hospital looked like then. So those of you who've been to Philadelphia, um, the, the road along that building, that's Pine Street. Um, and everything south of that was just farms at that time. So this is what it looked like when Rush uh, worked there. Um, and ho this hospital was only for poor people because basically all medical care at this time was given at home. So you had surgery at home. Um, hospitals were only for the indigent, and all the patients were indigent at the hospital except those with mental illness. Mental illness is only democratic disease, and they were locked in the basement of this uh, hospital, and they were treated, um, the belief was at this time that people with mental illness uh, could not tell the difference between hot and cold, so the rooms they were in were not heated. Uh, they slept on the floor, they were chained, and um, people could pay to come in and see them and look at what it meant to be crazy, um, which is one of the things that Benjamin Rush did something about. Rush was a young doctor. One of the things he found out about and one of his great interests as a political writer was religious persecution. Now, he was Christian, so you'd think that, in general, that would be uh, not a kind of a problem that a Christian doctor would have, but he saw himself as being the wrong kind of Christian. Um, he was second Presbyterian in a city where the Church of England ruled, the Quaker Church ruled, and first Presbyterianism ruled, and Rush thought it was going to be very hard to build a medical practice if he was the, even the wrong kind of Presbyterian. That made him really interested in religious freedom. So when the country began being made, it was important to him 
that there were no religious tests, that there was a separation of church and state, um, and something that he fought very hard for his entire life. He also um, wanted to start writing, and he, his career, I mean, as a writer, I have to say as a freelance writer, he was like a freelance writer. He made a lot of his money writing pamphlets and writing little books. First one he wrote um, after he had so many patients who, were, who couldn't pay him, he thought he'd get some better patients, so he would write a book uh, about how rich people could take care of themselves. Um, and it's the first self-help book, actually. It talks about exercise, talks about eating vegetables, uh, talks about all kinds of good things. Interestingly, temperance at that time, which Rush became known for, um, didn't include wine and beer. Uh, wine at that time was considered a, a medicine, and beer was considered something that was not really so alcoholic that it mattered. In fact, Rush wrote in this book one of the great pay-ins to wine, which I always like to read. He says, wine is principally useful to old people or such as are in the decline of life. At a medium, the body begins to decline at the age of 45 or 50. Then the hot fit of the fever of life begins to abate, and from the many disappointments in love, friendship, ambition, or trade, which most of men meet by the time they arrive at this age, they generally feel a heavy heart. Here wine prolongs the strength and powers of nature. It is the grave of past misfortunes. In a word, it is another name for philosophy. Remember my aged hearers, all those 45 and 50-year-olds, if you would expect to enjoy a long reprieve from the infirmities of age, you must begin to use wine moderately and increase the quantity of it as you descend into the valley of life. So we would all like to have this doctor. Um, although, interestingly, what he also wrote in this, um, he couldn't uh, actually hold back from taking a shot at people who were wealthy because he was against slavery in a huge way. And what he talked about in this book was not uh, in a passing way, was he talked about why people should exercise, and his explanation for why they needed to exercise is because they were having their slaves do all their work. This is not the best way to get wealthy people to be your uh, doctor, uh, but it's the beginning of people understanding that Rush had a medical idea about why slavery was bad. And because of that, um, the leading um, anti-slavery advocate at the time, Anthony Benize, convinced him to write an entire pamphlet against slavery. What's interesting about this pamphlet is that it's not just against slavery, it's against racism against free blacks. Uh, because Rush's idea was that black people and white people were exactly the same. He treated black people and white people, he knew there were no medical differences between them, and so he offered a medical explanation for why there should not be racism and tried to undermine the idea that there should be slavery because there was something different about African Americans. A pretty novel idea in its time for which he was roundly criticized. After this pamphlet came out, even though he did not sign it, he let people know that he wrote it and half of his patients left his practice immediately. Um, it is because of that we believe that he did not write the, the pamphlet that became Common Sense. Now, Common Sense was originally being written by Rush. Rush decided to write a pamphlet about independence, but he thought it was too dangerous to his practice. He met Thomas Paine at a local bookstore, probably kind of like this bookstore. I don't think it had latte. Um, and uh, he figured Thomas Paine was a freelance writer. In the, in the history of doctors' relationships with freelance writers, I can tell you from being a freelance writer, doctors would always say it's better for a freelance writer to take a risk and ruin their career than a doctor to do it. So Rush decided that Thomas Paine should write Common Sense. Uh, and they worked on it together. Payne would write pages, he would bring them to Rush's house. Rush edited Common Sense, he gave it its title, he found its publisher. Of course, neither of them had any idea what a big deal this would be. And in reality, when Common Sense came out in um, seven, early 1776, uh, Rush probably did not think it was gonna be any big thing. He was much more worried because the day after it came out, he got married. He finally turned 30, <laughs> he finally was allowed to get married. It's a long wait. 
Um, and he married, um, he married Julia Stockton. Julia Stockton was the daughter of Richard Stockton, who was the most famous lawyer in New Jersey and is now best known for being a rest stop on the New Jersey Turnpike. Um, there's also a university named after him. And his wife, Annis Boudinot Stockton, who was one of the first published American-born female authors, a poet, um, a woman of letters. And uh, Julia, while she was only 16, uh, was uh, quite a progressive young woman, excellent uh, musician, and interested in writing in the arts. And Rush was really concerned that she grow up and be educated. Rush believed in women's education. Um, and in fact, one of their love letters, he describes how he's building a library for her in the house that she's about to move into. Uh, and he's already picked the first hundred books that he has bought for her that they are going to discuss. Um, so it's a pretty modern romance. Uh, so they got married, and Common Sense came out. Common Sense became the biggest sensation in the history of publishing. Um, no one knew that Rush had been involved in it at all. No one knew that, uh, uh, that Thomas Paine had been involved. It was a big secret. And within months, Rush was, went from being a doctor to the people coming to the Continental Congress. He had, he had been a doctor to Adams and had people over to their house while they were there doing the Continental Congress. He was elected to the Continental Congress. Um, because one of the delegates from Pennsylvania uh, would not vote for the Declaration of Independence. And so he was voted out and Rush took his place. John Dickinson, for whom Dickinson College was named. So only weeks after Rush was uh, put into the Continental Congress, he got to sign the Declaration of Independence, which is lucky because we have great descriptions of him of what it was like to sign the Declaration of Independence. He talked uh, in his letters uh, very powerfully about the hush in the room, how people really understood uh, that they were doing something that could be, they could be dead because of. But he also offered a little bit of uh, true gallows humor. Uh, he talked about part of the signing. At one point, um, Benjamin Harrison from Virginia, who was a big heavyset guy, uh, and Eldridge Gary, uh, for whom gerrymandering was named, um, a little skinny guy went up to, from Massachusetts went up to sign. And before they did, Harrison said, uh, you know, when we're hung for this, I'm going to die right away because I'm a big fat guy. You are a little skinny guy. You're going to dangle for the longest time before you go. So, and this is, again, this is in Rush's descriptions of what it was like to sign the Declaration. And it's part of what's wonderful about Rush as a character, really good writer, really accessible writer. Uh, and thank God, because if you're going to spend five years writing a biography of somebody, you really hope they're a good writer. Um, this is during the time when Rush really became close with Adams and Jefferson. He was also friendly with Washington during this time and really much supported Washington as the general uh, for the armies. Uh, things changed with him in Washington over time, which I'll tell you a little bit about. But his friendship with these guys is very well documented during this time in their letters and in the work they did together. Rush actually wandered away from the Continental Congress in the fall of 1776 because uh, he was on the medical committee, but he wanted to see what was happening firsthand. So he was actually with Washington the night before the crossing of the Delaware. The reason we know that Washington had little pieces of paper that said victory or death on them is that Rush saw him with them and one of them fell on the ground during the time they were together and Rush described it. He also described how scared to death Washington was. And if you remember, you know, the first couple years of the war didn't go so great. Um, that was the time that Rush was most involved in the war, um, which is also why he was most scared they were going to lose. Uh, so he crossed the Delaware right after Washington with a group from Pennsylvania. He came into New Jersey where he took care of patients from the Battle of Trenton. And then he had to go to Princeton where he went to college and watch them fight and take back Nassau Hall. So they were actually blowing up Nassau Hall to get the British people out of it, which is where he had gone to classes. And he was taking care of patients on the battlefield. Uh, this is one of the most famous paintings of the uh, Battle of Princeton. Like most of these Revolutionary War paintings, completely ridiculous in terms of actual history, um, which you can know because the guy and the third guy behind there behind Washington is supposedly Rush. 
going in on the back of a horse with a sword held high. This, of course, never happened. Um, Rush went in there to take care of patients. Um, he did, uh, during this time, uh, have to take care of, of General Mercer, who, um, as legend tells us, uh, tried to um, uh, surrender to the British. They would not accept it. They lanceted, they bayoneted him seven times after he surrendered and then hit him in the head. And then Rush had to take care of him in the military hospital. He was also a doctor. They sat around talking about whether he would live. Um, Mercer knew he was going to die. Rush was sure he was going to live. Rush was wrong. Um, and Mercer bled out. In fact, you can still go to that farmhouse in Princeton. It's right in front of Nassau Hall um, and see where he bled out. It's still bloodstained on the floor there. Um, these are some of the instruments that Rush used in the battlefield. Uh, battlefield medicine uh, was pretty simple. It was a lot of cutting stuff off. Um, some things Rush described as just sort of hanging by a sinew anyway. Um, there was a lot of bloodletting because bloodletting was the main treatment they had at that time. They believed that lowering the volume of blood would help. This is sort of the first idea of an anti-infective, even though they didn't know what infection was. Um, so the battlefield scenes that he describes are painful. It's very clear that he is traumatized by them as well as the soldiers. Um, and this is what you use to bloodlet. Don't use this at home, but you know, it's a little lancet. You shoot it right into the vein here, and then the blood comes out into a bowl. Um, during this time, Rush wrote the first great treatise on military medicine. It was used up through the Civil War. Uh, it started with the sentence that has been so prophetic, fatal experience has taught the people of America the truth. A greater proportion of men perish with sickness in all armies that fall by the sword. And Rush was really worried that military hospitals were, in fact, more dangerous than the battlefields, um, which they were. So Rush went through a series of battles, all of which we got our asses kicked in. It was a very bad year, 1776, 1777. He was at the Battle of Brandywine, which, if you know, uh, Washington in the blue thought that he was fighting the, the uh, British in the red straight on. Didn't realize they were gonna, he was going to come back around and get him from the back. Rush's hospital was at the Birmingham Meeting House there. They thought they were safe. Um, so all of a sudden, they hear British troops coming up behind them, uh, fife and drum coming from the wrong guys. Um, and Rush and his fellow doctors were briefly taken prisoner. They did escape, but the Battle of Brandywine was a terrible loss, and there were a series of other terrible losses through the fall of 1777, which really freaked Rush out, and he was convinced that we had already blown it. Um, he, many of the generals were telling him that perhaps Washington was picking the wrong people through the revolution, and so uh, he wrote a series of letters that he wished he hadn't. These are the equivalent of you writing an email and knowing you shouldn't press send, um, but doing it anyway. Uh, so Rush wrote a letter to John Adams about his concerns about Washington, which he had heard from other generals. He wrote this letter to Patrick Henry, which he did not sign, and he asked Patrick Henry to burn, but Patrick Henry did not. He actually held on to it for several months, uh, and, and it laid out what, at the time, many generals were, were concerned that Washington was doing the wrong thing, or at least putting the wrong generals in place. He also wrote a letter like this to his wife. This is an unpublished letter that we published in the book for the first time. It was found in the collection of the Rosenbach Library. Um, it goes into even more detail about Russia's concerns about General Washington. It also makes clear that his wife, Julia, even though much younger than him, was really a protective wife, knew she had to sort of calm him down, and was always trying to get him to dial back his rhetoric. Uh, so in this, he says, I thank you for your hint, which I'm sure was not a hint, uh, respecting General Washington. She was probably just saying, like, shut up. It's not a good idea to be criticizing the commander-in-chief. And I accept it. Um, as a proof of your affection for me, it was unnecessary because all the people in Pennsylvania already agree with me, um, and I am satisfied, he writes, to be silent. This is the biggest lie Benjamin Rush ever said in his life. Benjamin Rush was never silent. Um, then he goes on for the next four pages explaining why Washington is the wrong guy to run the, 
uh, revolutionary armies. If this letter had been found, Benjamin Rush would have been tried for treason. Um, interestingly, no one ever saw this letter, and only two months later, Rush was mostly mad at Washington at this time because he felt he was underfunding the hospitals. Uh, and there was not enough money being given to treat patients. They actually made up on that. Washington changed the rules on all that. Um, and then, and then and Rush left the military, and then only two months later, Patrick Henry sent the original letter to George Washington. No one knows why. Um, he didn't know who wrote it. But Washington was friends with Rush, had been to Rush's house many times, knew Rush's handwriting quite well. So he knew Rush had written it. He was crushed by this because it was bad enough that his generals were criticizing him. He expected that. But for somebody who was his friend, who was a congressman, who mattered to him personally, and he never really um, got over this, and he never really forgave Rush for this, not only in his life, but he made sure that this was left in his afterlife as well. Um, so it's part of the reason that Rush's family suppressed his story was because of the fear that people would find out about this letter, from letter to George Washington. So Rush withdrew from all this. He went back to Philadelphia. He set up his medical practice again. But he doubled down on what he really felt was important, which is he believed that once the Revolutionary War was over, the revolution was really only starting. Because the idea was, what were we supposed to be as American citizens now that we had fought for this freedom? And that's what Rush really cared about. He wrote, the American War is over, but this is far from being the case with the American Revolution. Nothing but the first act of the great drama is closed. And what he believed was the first thing was that there had to be a huge amount of public education. There was no way that we could be real Americans and understand our, 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 what we needed to do as citizens if we weren't better educated. So the first thing that he did was um, he created what became Dickinson College. Uh, this was to be the first rural college in America. All the other colleges were in cities. And um, so this was, Dickinson was the border of Pennsylvania at this time. Of course, Pennsylvania didn't go all the way to Pittsburgh. And um, so he created Dickinson College, and after that, he helped create what became Franklin and Marshall College, which was originally Franklin College. Uh, Franklin College had an even bigger issue than just being a rural college. Franklin College was the first college for people who only spoke German. So the idea that, you know, think about our ideas about immigration today, the idea that one of the founding fathers believed that there should be a German language college to make sure that immigrants from Germany could be educated, again, to understand their uh, responsibilities as citizens. Uh, because no, there had never been a country like America before, so how do you even decide what people are supposed to do? What does being in a Republican democracy mean? So he wrote uh, to make sure there was female education. He was one of the founders of the first school for women, a high school that taught them the same things that men learned. Um, he was involved in the school for free blacks. Um, he also put out the first plan for an establishment of statewide public schools, which became the basis of all public school systems in the country. Uh, and Rush kind of did this in his free time. I mean, he had a huge medical practice. He was working at Pennsylvania Hospital, but he felt that he needed to explain to people what they were supposed to do as Americans. What's amazing about this writing is how accessible it is today and how all the issues are exactly the same. So Rush didn't think they were going to get them done. One of the differences between a founding father who's a lawyer or a businessman and a founding father who's a doctor is the founding fathers who are lawyers think if you pass a law, you'll fix a problem. Founding fathers who are doctors know that there are certain things that never get better, or they only get a tiny bit more incrementally better, and they are going to be dealt with in every generation. These were the things that Rush thought that laws would never get to, that voluntary associations, people doing philanthropic work, and people being good citizens were going to be the reason these things were going to be addressed. And so he did a lot of writing on that subject at this time. He also, because he was working in the hospitals and seeing that many of the people there were there because of alcohol addiction or because of mental illness, 
He took on the issue of alcohol addiction. Again, wine didn't count, and we already learned that. Um, this uh, inquiry into the effects of spiritus liquors uh, was a hugely influential, the first time that the idea that alcoholism was a disease was ever broached. It also had a chart in it that you might see online. It's actually the best known thing that Benjamin Rush ever wrote. Rush was kind of a magazine writer. I mean, these kinds of charts we think of as being like from Entertainment Weekly or something in the 80s or 90s, but they were doing it in the 1780s. So he had a list of, so temperance, you can see cider, wine, porter, they're, they led to cheerfulness, strength, nourishment, when taken in meals in moderate quantities. But once you get to intemperance, you're in big trouble. So, you know, gin, uh, and brandy, rum, whiskey, especially in the morning, would lead to swindling, perjury, burglary, murder, suicide, um, dropsy, epilepsy, melancholy, apoplexy, and you know, your punishments would be jail, whipping, you would end up at the gallows. So stick to wine, even for breakfast, um, you'll be fine. During this time, Rush also wrote uh, and gave as a speech at the American Philosophical Society the first major treatise on mental illness being a medical condition and not, as people believed at the time, a failure of prayer and spiritual belief or a failure of will. I would like to think that we got, have made some progress in this area since then, but since I've been doing mental health advocacy for much of my life, I will tell you that most people with mental illness and their families spend an incredible amount of time trying to convince their friends and sometimes their houses of worship these same exact issues. So these are the issues that always are around mental health and addiction, sadly. This is really the first attempt to do this. Uh, Benjamin Franklin was sitting in the audience, uh, as, and this was dedicated to him. It's an amazing piece of writing. It came out in 1786. Um, and it is the cornerstone of all mental health advocacy in the world. It's the first time people ever wrote about this. Rush also had great insights in this about some of the challenges of America. He laid out this idea in one sentence that I always found was so interesting. He said, the challenge of America is going to be balancing these four things. And I, I swear to God, we're still trying to balance them today. How do we balance science, religion, liberty, and good government? Because Rush was caught, you know, most scientists at this time didn't believe in religion. They were atheists. Rush was a scientist and a, and a doctor who believed in religion. He believed that science and religion should be able to coexist. And that coexistence is still a huge issue even today. Um, he then, with, with Franklin, and Franklin was dying at this point. Rush was kind of propping him up, and he got a couple good years left. Um, and they, they started a lot of voluntary associations. This one, um, for which he wrote a piece on public punishments, one of the first uh, very loud denunciations of the death penalty and also prison overcrowding. Um, it led to actually an oversight. Um, people started, um, the Eastern State Penitentiary, which some of you may have toured, uh, had all single cells because they misinterpreted what Rush wrote. He didn't think everybody should be in solitary confinement. He just thought there shouldn't be so many people jammed into the cells, uh, but that's what they ended up with. Um, Rush also, oddly during this time, because he was so openly against slavery, he did own one enslaved person. We have no idea why this happened. I did a lot of research just trying to figure it out. Um, we were lucky that um, one of the leading experts on, on slavery during the Revolutionary War was at the library company in Philadelphia during this time, so we got to ask him a lot of questions. William Grubber was his name. He was a cook. Uh, he was in Russia's employ and ownership from 1780 until the late, from, until the late 1780s. This is uh, his manumission papers. Um, he, Rush freed him. Uh, when the Abolition Society started up again in Pennsylvania, which was the first abolition society in the country, and he and Franklin started it again. But it, it is a mystery why Rush had this one slave who he stayed with his entire life. After he was freed, Grubber still worked in Rush's house, um, and when he died, Rush took care of him and uh, took care of him in Pennsylvania Hospital and paid for his funeral. Um, 
This is all happening while the Constitution was being written. Rush was not one of the writers of the Constitution. Uh, he actually wanted out of politics at this time. He was just involved in trying to influence it as much as he could, especially the language on separation of church and state. But he did lead the Pennsylvania delegation in terms of ratifying it. Uh, he was spending much of his time trying to be a doctor, and also I think he wanted to be the next Benjamin Franklin. I think that he felt that Franklin Franklin's death uh, was really going to mean something, and there always needed to be somebody like Franklin who was trying to solve big public problems with big public volunteerism, and he wanted to start the same kind of organizations that, that Franklin did. Um, and among this was his drive for mental health advocacy. So he fought to have the hospital stop, put heaters into the, into the mental health wards. Um, he stopped the uh, practice of people being able to go in and look at the people with mental illness. And he forced publicly, by writing letters to the newspaper, he forced the hospital to build a new building on 9th Street that was just for the treatment of mental illness and addiction, um, which is the first hospital like that in the world. And um, he, he became more and more well-known, especially when Penn became a, a, a university and the, the capital moved to Philadelphia. Uh, he began to be called the American Hippocrates, which some th people thought was a, um, a compliment, and other people sort of did it sni snidely, uh, making fun of how much power he had. And this is one of the people who did it snidely. So in Benjamin Rush world, when we see a picture of Alexander Hamilton, we hiss. Um, because, because Rush and Hamilton did not like each other. So can we have some hisses? Thank you. I know if you've seen Hamilton, it might hurt you to do this, but, you know, it's for your own good. Um, so Alexander and Hamilton and Rush um, despised each other, even though their wives were friends, their f kids were friends. They lived across the street from each other, and what this um, 1790 census shows is that actually at one point, uh, Rush's house, they moved out of the house, and the Hamiltons moved in. So you see Dr. Benjamin Rush right here. And then above it, it says, um, Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton, because he moved into their house. Uh, the, the life is too short to describe all the things that Rush and Hamilton fought about, um, just about everything. One of the great things they fought about that, that turned into something that you may have heard about recently, Rush was very worried about militarism in the country after we weren't at war anymore. He thought it was very dangerous for there to be militias. He thought it was very dangerous for people to still be wearing their uniforms and being called by their military uh, names. And so he wrote um, a plan for having a peace office. He said if there's going to be a war department, there should be a peace department. Now, you may have heard that Marianne Williamson recently talked about this during one of the debates. Um, several senators have brought up this idea. Um, this original piece about uh, having a, a peace office was obviously partly, partly humor, uh, but Rush really believed this, that if we had a war office, we should have a peace office. He also thought the war office should have different signage. Um, he said, if we're going to have a war office, he would like to put the following descriptions on the door of the war office. That she, an office for butchering the human species, a widow and orphan making office, a bo broken bone making office, a wooden leg making office. Benjamin Rush was never subtle. Um, so this list goes on. Um, and he also said at the, at the, the end of the page, it should um, uh, have a description of dead bodies, hospitals crowded with sick and wounded soldiers, villages on fire. And above this group of woeful figures, let the following words be inserted in red characters to represent human blood, national glory. So um, Russian Hamilton really went at it with each other in continental Philadelphia, which was the capital from 1790 to 1800, which people do not appreciate what an important time this was in Philadelphia and in the nation. Uh, the, Philadelphia saw amazing things, among them the yellow fever epidemic. Um, I could do a whole talk on the yellow fever epidemic. I've done a whole talk on the yellow fever epidemic. What I will tell you about it is that one of the key things about it is that no one had the slightest idea how to treat yellow fever or why people got yellow fever. So everything became very political, especially after Hamilton claimed that he had gotten yellow fever, uh, which he probably did not. 
and he had been treated with a treatment different than Russia's treatment, and he got better. So that was described in the newspapers as the Federalist treatment. Um, and because Rush was a Republican and followed more of Jefferson's idea, his treatment was called the Republican treatment. Um, Rush, because no treatments worked on yellow fever, just kept giving more and more of every treatment. So bloodletting, they just doubled the dose. Uh, purging, they did a lot of purging at that time, they just doubled the dose. Um, other doctors did more delicate treatments, but none of them worked. None of them had any idea why they did it. Uh, we actually found the letters of, between Rush and his wife, the ones from his wife had not been published, which are actually quite fascinating. Every one of them, the wife knows this could be the last time she ever communicates with her husband. After the yellow fever epidemic ended, which of course it did when it was cold, and the mosquitoes died, but no one knew that, um, there were many books that were written. If you think instant books were created in, in this bookstore now, there were instant books in 1793, uh, three of them about this epidemic, one by uh, a journalist, one of them by, Rush had been very close with the African-American clergy. Uh, he had been helping them build the first church for free, free blacks when the epidemic started. And so Absalom Jones and Richard Allen, the two leading black clergymen in the country, in the city, worked with him as nurses and actually did treatments uh, during the yellow fever epidemic. And then after the yellow fever epidemic, they were criticized in the white press for ripping people off um, and all kinds of racist things. And so they wrote their own book. Um, this is the first book ever published by African-Americans and copyrighted by African-Americans. It describes their experience of the yellow fever epidemic. And then at the end, it has an essay describing why white people shouldn't be prejudiced against black people anymore. An unbelievable piece of writing, very accessible. I wish school kids read this. So audacious, and it really shows that race relations in this country were much more openly challenging at this time that people understood. They did finally finish those churches, and this is actually the 225th anniversary of this. Um, they, uh, the uh, Mother Bethel Church, which is still there at 6th and Lombard, uh, and the Church of St. George um, down the street. These are the first free black churches in America. They began all the black churches that we understand in America right now. And they were, they were in part done because Benjamin Rush wrote up the business plan, helped them with the sermons, helped them raise the money. Uh, Rush was a huge believer in this. At the same time, as he was a huge believer in building this medical building for the mentally ill, and he lived through the 1790s, was very contentious because his two best friends were at political odds. Obviously, Adams became president, Jefferson is vice president, Federalist versus Republican. And then in the election of 1800, which is considered the most contentious election ever in history, the one we had in 2016, nothing by comparison. Trust me, I mean, Adams was described in the newspaper as being a maggot. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and there's a huge press at this time. Rush was crushed by this. He believed in Jefferson, but he couldn't believe his two friends being torn apart by this. So after the election, uh, Adams left town never to be in government or near government again. Uh, Jefferson moved to Washington because the capital left. And Rush was just left with his two best friends gone um, and so destroyed by what had happened in politics that he wrote this to his children. In battle, men kill without hating each other. In political contests, men hate without killing. But in that hatred, they commit murder every hour of their lives. And one of the things he committed himself to was trying to get the friendship between Adams and Jefferson back together. During the early 1800s, he was the medical advisor for the Lewis and Clark expedition, which is a whole other lecture that you can come hear me give sometime. Um, but mostly, what's fascinating about his life during this time, besides his teaching, because he taught the first 3,000 doctors in America, was five years after they stopped speaking, Adams wrote Rush a letter and said, you know, we should really talk before one of us dies. And that set off an amazing correspondence between Adams and Rush that went on for eight years, hundreds of letters, in which they retold the entire story of America as older, cranky guys, 
um, and really told the truth about many things that we didn't know before. I mean, if you want to know where, where the true American history of the revolution comes from, it comes from these later letters between Rush and Adams. And at the same time, Rush was writing to Jefferson. Um, one of the great letters that Adams wrote, um, Adams and Rush were obsessed with uh, the fact that, that the kingship had been replaced in America by something called fame. Um, which if you think again, it's, it's happening, it's been happening ever since then. So they were very upset that fame was so important and they were also upset that they weren't as famous as George Washington and Benjamin Franklin, which they didn't think was fair. Um, so this is what Adams wrote, and this is something he wrote to Russia a bunch of times. The history of our revolution will be one continued lie from one end to the other. The essence of the whole will be that Dr. Franklin's electrical rod smote the earth and outsprung General Washington that Franklin electrified him with his rod, and thenceforward these two conducted all the policy negotiations, legislation, and the war. Um, so he was just obsessed with this idea that no one was going to give him credit for helping build the country. Um, his letters were also very open between the two of them because they had amazing family issues going on. Of course, Russia, uh, Adams had already lost his son to alcoholism. His daughter, Nabby, had breast cancer, and Rush helped diagnose it and forced them to treat it more aggressively than they had been. And then in the middle of all this, Rush's oldest son, who was a physician, who was supposed to take over his practice, uh, suffered a psychotic break after killing his best friend in a duel. They were fighting over a line in Shakespeare. I, we cannot know what line it was. Um, but the educated Rush family, this is the kind of thing they would fight about. Um, and he shot his best friend, who fell dead in his arms. And he uh, had a psychotic break and started trying to kill himself. The doctors, this was in New Orleans, the Navy doctors in New Orleans were afraid to tell the Rushes what had happened because Dr. Rush was the most famous doctor of mental illness in the world and he had been their teacher. So for years they tried to teach, treat John Rush as he kept trying to kill himself. And after several years of this, they finally sent him home. Rush came to see him. He looked like, he said he described him as like a biblical madman. Like, how, you know, our images of Howard Hughes at his sickest. Hair grown out, nails grown out, just unrecognizable at his son. This is his admission record. Uh, you can see admitted John Rush. Uh, melancholy, which is the bottom line. Um, uh, son of Dr. Rush when he came back. And he ended up being in the care of Pennsylvania Hospital for the next 30 years. And he became the most famous psychiatric patient in America. Rush had a couple things he wanted to get done. Uh, before he died, and he knew that his life was going to end soon. So one of the things that he forced was he wanted to force at Jefferson and Adams to be friends again. He believed that if the two founders of the country, the real intellectual founders of the country, could be separated simply by partisan politics, what did that say for the future of our nation? So he started writing letters to each of them, begging them just to be friends again. And he would say things like, I heard from somebody that Jefferson said he still loves you. I mean, the language is that clear. Um, and he told Adams that he had a dream one night, and in the dream he read a history book from the future, and in the history book it said that next week, Adams and Jefferson were gonna get back together. So Adams and Jefferson should get back together because that's history. He did this for a couple years, and then finally in 1812, Adams and Jefferson started writing to each other after a separation of 12 years. Um, Rush thought he was doing this because one of them would die soon. He didn't realize that he was gonna die soon. And Adams and Jefferson's letter writing went on for another 13 years. I mean, they died in, in, uh, in, seven, in 1826. Um, so again, Rush's letters allowed that correspondence to happen, which also not only was part of our understanding of the revolution, but is also um, one of the things that, uh, that Rush and uh, Jefferson often talked about was religion. Rush, uh, Jefferson had an odd uh, view of religion. Not odd, he believed that Christ was a real person, but all the miracles were made up. 
So he actually decided there should be a Bible, which is only about Christ's actual life and none of the things that were added to it. So he actually took a razor um, because he had promised Rush he would do a piece of writing about this, and he cut up the Bible and he cut out all the miracles and created something called the Jefferson Bible to show Rush what he meant by his religious um, ideas. So these guys, a lot of this correspondence did a lot of this. So they got back together. Uh, there were no heart emojis during that time. I made that up. Um, and they got back together. And the last thing that Rush did before he died was that he wrote the first ever American book on mental illness. This is the copy that he gave to John Adams. Adams told him this book would change the world someday, but probably not soon because people wouldn't get it. He was right. Uh, Rush died in um, 1813 in April. This is his tomb um, at Christ Church. You should all go see it. Um, you can just walk past Benjamin Franklin's, which you've already seen. Um, Benjamin Rush, equally important. His wife lived another 30 years without him because she was so young. Uh, she had an amazing correspondence, actually, with Abigail Adams about what it was like to be a widow. Um, really fascinating between the two women. And then Rush, and, and I'm going to tie up here, interestingly, in his afterlife, had to deal with the fact that his family was afraid that all the things that he knew would get out. So he had written an autobiography, which the family thought they would publish. Then they started crossing out the lines that might seem controversial, and by the end, there were no more lines. Um, th that cross-out version is actually at the Philosophical Society, and when they finally published it, they had to publish all the lines that were crossed out. Um, Adams believed the autobiography would be published, but he was so scared that the other letters might be. He said, you know, when somebody came to the piece, I, I, I know, not know how you could have conceived a project more victorious or more patriotic, yet I shudder at the thought of all my letters that I wrote to Rush being published. Um, his son, who was in the government, kept a lot of that from happening. And so Rush didn't know that it would take over 100 years for his legacy to even begin to be handled again. This is one of the things that he wrote, though, that gives some indication that he had an idea. The most acceptable men in practical society have been those who have never shocked their contemporaries by opposing popular or common opinions. Men of opposite characters, like objects placed too near the eye, are seldom seen distinctly by the age in which they live. They must content themselves with the prospect of being useful to the distant and more enlightened generations, that's us at bookstores, um, which are to follow them. Um, I want to thank you very much for having me here this evening. I'm happy to take any of your questions, and I hope you get a chance to read the book. That was pretty close to on time, right? Yeah, that was good. Somewhat close. <laughs> uh, we have time for a few questions from the audience, so if you have a question, please raise your hand, and I see one in the second row. We'll start there. Ah, uh, the running with the microphone. So uh, my question is, having seen so many things about Benjamin Rust that are almost uh, uh, hagiography, mm -hmm. um, is there anything that you uh, would describe as you know, having a black side or dirty secrets about him because what you've said has been overwhelmingly so positive. Well, I think that I've described things that are pretty negative. He owned a slave. He was the, uh, you know, he was the uh, hero and anti-hero of the yellow fever epidemic. I mean, one of the things that I will say about this book is we did not try to make Rush into a, um, into a pure, you know, un untroubling character. Rush was a troubling character even to himself. He also had dark moods. He, he clearly was uh, bipolar himself. Um, and so, no, I mean, there's, I, don't, I hope that I haven't seemed to make any effort. I, I do think that you're right that a lot of things that are written about Rush, what's amazing is that they're hagiographic, but they don't agree with each other. 
meaning people who are interested in his Christianity write about him as if he agrees with all their contemporary religious beliefs, which astonishingly he does not in any way. I mean, he believed in separation of church and state in a huge way, and he and Jefferson actually wrote about their fear that organized religion would try to get too involved in the politics of the country. Um, so Rush was, if anything, and, and a lot of his uh, medical treatments, of course, because we knew so little about medicine at that time, turned out to be ridiculous. Now, uh, he didn't make most of them up. He was just teaching what the medicine was of the day. Uh, but there are clearly many things that uh, people criticize Benjamin Rush for. And uh, what we also wanted to make sure was that we didn't, there are interpretations, for example. There are some people who interpret the fact that he owned a slave as saying that he bought the slave to free the slave, because some abolitionists did that. And we worked very hard to see if there was actually any evidence for that. Um, you, and it turned out that we could not justify that he had owned a slave for eight years if he would plan to free him. And he only did it to free him. So I went out of my way to make sure that people could not accuse at least the book, if not the speech, um, of being overly hagiographic. Because I think Rush is a really complicated guy. He was as complicated to himself as he was to everybody else. The founders both loved him, and every once in a while he just drove them nuts. Um, he spoke the truth even when it was unbelievably inconvenient. And um, I think for that reason, both in life and in death, he really was the most honest of the founding fathers. And he knew all the other founding fathers, so he called them out. Uh, but he was a, a, trouble, a troubling character, um, which is part of the reason you haven't heard that much about him. And uh, be careful what you see on the internet. It's amazing. I spend some days, I go up on Twitter just to, just to correct things that are on Twitter that people have written about Rush that have been, that have been repeated a million times, which are completely not true. Um, but they repeated so often. You know, there are people who put that Rush claimed there, was, there needed to be a constitutional amendment to have freedom of doctoring. I mean, Rush never, ever said this. Um, but it was, it was actually a, quote, a fake quote that was created by doctors 100 years ago and has been used again and again and again by people because it sounds so good. Um, just like Rush had many quotes about using the Bible in school. Now, he didn't say that because he thought that religion should overcome school. He believed that the Bible as literature should be used at school because he was concerned that the first public schools would go from being completely religious to completely deist, to completely non-religious. But people who now don't believe in separation of church and state use those quotes to say, like, there should be Bibles in school, in the Bi and we should be using it uh, to teach people religion, um, not understanding that Rush was very careful by making sure that no one was ever told that they needed to believe anything that other that other just because other people believed it. So Rush is complex. Um, maybe I'm sounding too defensive. I don't know. Read the book, and we'll talk about it. Yes, um, front, front row. You mentioned how hard Dr. Rush worked to repair the relationship between John Adams and Jefferson. Yes. What became of his falling out with President Washington? Well, interestingly, um, it, it didn't get any better. <laughs> and in fact, what we, what we found out was that not only did Washington stay pissed at him the rest of his life, it was tempered a little bit because Rush's mother-in-law was friends with the Washingtons, and I think that they kept something going. But interestingly, when Washington was dying, he made sure that the letter that Rush had written to him made it into the hands of his biographer who became Chief Justice John Marshall, wrote the first major biography of, of Washington. And they actually quoted from the letter in it. And we have the letters of Rush writing to Marshall saying, please don't use the letter. Don't do this to me. Um, so he didn't use his name. Um, 
But uh, and as Washington became more and more famous, that's part of the reason why the Rush family did not let the autobiography be published because it criti was critical of Washington. They did not let the letters between Adams and Rush to be published because they were critical of Washington. And they weren't critical of Washington like he shouldn't be president, but they just felt that as he as he got more and more into a mythic figure that the people who knew him should talk about him. I think that we're pretty naturalistic about Washington today, but we forget that that's a late 20th century phenomenon. So from the end of the war, through Washington's death, through the next 150 years, Washington was just God. No one knew anything complicated about him at all. I think we know all the founding fathers a little bit more naturalistically now. A trend that began in the 1940s and 1950s, in part because the Rush family held on to all of Rush's letters until then. They were sold at auction in the 1940s. And that helped reinvigorate writing about all revolutionary period uh, and all the founding fathers after that. It's not a surprise that a lot of the big biographies that changed our ideas about the founding fathers came out after those letters became available. Because there was 900 letters that no one had ever seen um, be between the founders, plus Rush's autobiography, which included his burn book. Do you guys know what a burn book is? It's like what you do in high school where you write down what, everything you're pissed off about at different people. Um, so Rush was keeping a burn book about everybody who signed the Declaration of Independence and every general in the army, which his family was really afraid someone would get to see, because um, he's pretty open about the people that he thought were idiots. Um, so that finally got published um, in the 1950s. So it, it, it took a long time, but there, there are still things about their relationship that we don't know. Um, there's a new book about the Conway Cabal, which is the time period that we're talking about here. The Conway Cabal is supposedly the group of generals who were trying to allegedly overthrow Washington during the worst part of the war, and Rush was considered their friend. He wasn't a general, so he didn't have that kind of power, but uh, people still debate this stuff, and they will continue to. I hope that my biography adds to it some, because, again, the letter that he wrote to his wife about Washington is probably the longest explanation that he gave of what he thought about Washington as a general at that time. He also specifically criticized Washington for, for using, giving so much power to Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton's name appears in Russia's writings very early. He's like, who's this 21-year-old who's getting so much attention from George Washington? So early on, he distrusted Hamilton. Um, and now we know what happened. He got a musical and Rush didn't. <laughs> Question in the back. So obviously, uh, you said that uh, Rush was tuned into uh, enlightenment figures in England. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have any insight into the impact that the enlightenment had on his thinking and how much uh, was it an influence of enlightenment versus just his own native intellect uh, coming to the fore? It's a really good question, which I think you probably already answered. Because um, I think it was both. I mean, Rush was considered somebody caught up in the Scottish Enlightenment because obviously he went to medical school in Scotland. The Scottish Enlightenment is a little bit different than the Enlightenment that we learned about in school. Um, the role of the Enlightenment and the revolutions, uh, you know, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, um, it, it's all very intertwined. I would say that Rush was very well educated uh, as well as being an original thinker. So there are certain aspects of, of his thinking that we would very much see more in line with the Scottish Enlightenment. Uh, at the same time, that separation of religion and science was something that he could not abide. So in, in his world, people were either scientists or religious people, and he wanted to be both. And I think that was something the Enlightenment did not help him with. That was something that he struggled with himself. He was fascinated by the way people worshipped. 
Um, he, you know, it was like he was going around the country saying, like, what do you believe and what do you believe? And um, to, to really interesting people, his relationships with the Jewish community in Philadelphia is fascinating. The earliest writing we have about Jewish practice in the Revolutionary Times is Russia's description of Jonas Phillips's daughter marriage. Jonas Phillips was the president of Mikveh Israel, and the person who was most involved in making sure the separation of church and state language made it into the Constitution. And Rush described being like the only non-Jew at the wedding. And he was, he, was, he was saying like, God, I can't believe how much Jews talk during religious services. I would never talk during religious service. God would kill me. And uh, he, he went on about, he had never seen anybody break the glass at the end of a wedding. And, and then at the end, Mrs. Phillips insisted that he fill his pockets with cake to take home to his, to his wife. Um, so I think that the, the original part of Russia's thinking was that he was trying to balance something that most people during his generation took sides on. You know, Franklin was an open deist. This crushed Rush because he worshipped Franklin. When Rush, Franklin died, the only thing Rush wanted to know was like, did he say something about Jesus in his last words? Did he finally come around and say something? And when, when his son said no, he was like, oh my God, you know. Uh, so that's the part. But I, I think that, you know, his... His ideas have been studied in terms of the Enlightenments, and I think that we need to start taking, taking, paying more attention to the American Enlightenment. I think that people, remember the history of the world was being written by Europeans at that time. So they thought that everything that people thought in America was stolen from Europe. Well, guess what? You know, it wasn't. America was an original idea. These people had original thoughts, and they were different than what they were learning, even if they were schooled and given the grand tour of Europe. Uh, because after a certain point, people were responding to the American Revolution. But the history of the world didn't really include American thought until well into the 1800s. Because in a way, Americans didn't even think their history was worth preserving yet. You know, they were going to knock down Independence Hall. No, it never occurred to anybody that it would matter. They didn't think America was going to last that long. It was only when Lafayette came in the 1820s and started romanticizing this American history that people in America started taking their own history seriously. That's when they, just, that's when they started calling that building Independence Hall. Before that, it was called the State House, and it was supposed to be knocked down. And the Liberty Bell had already been sold for scrap. Um, so it's, it's all an evolution, but I think that we have to keep in mind that by the 1800s, there's a reason that we gravitate towards history of America from the 1800s on, because America as a thing is more paid attention to. During the Revolution period, except for the Revolution, people still think of Europe as running the world. But one of the biggest things that I found as somebody who writes about mental illness that I was so fascinated by and kind of proud of is that you know, the idea that of moral mental health care is always ascribed to a man named Philippe Pinel, who started writing about it in the, 18, in the 1790s and the 1800s. For us to show that Benjamin Rush was writing the same things and practicing them 10 years before in America, that is a fascinating challenge to the history of medicine. But people don't take American medicine seriously during this time because of bloodletting. Well, guess what? Everybody in the world was bloodletting, and everybody in the world bloodlet until the late 1800s. Benjamin Rush might have been the first great teacher of medicine during the time, but he didn't invent it. He did, for the first time, write about these ideas about mental illness and addiction, which are still important ideas today. So I do think I would love to see more people pay attention to this period and say, you know, what the Americans were doing mattered from the minute they started their revolution and not, I think, to some degree, we start paying attention after the Civil War. And everything before the Civil War is just like a big schmush. But you know what? We need to pay narrative attention to all those things. Um, and, and thinking about Rush and where he fits into these movements and what movements these Americans led, I think is a good place to start. We have time for just one more question in the back. 
You may have answered my question a little bit with what you said there at the end. One of the slides you showed, and you referred to um, that Rush wrote a book about mental illness. Yes. Is anything that he wrote or any of the treatments he prescribed still in use or in today, or was it, is it still valid today, or has so much changed in the field of mental illness and how to treat it that his ideas are antiquated and no longer used? Well, interestingly, the descriptions, the early descriptions of mental illness, what the diseases looked like, what the symptoms looked like, uh, most people, and I'm not a doctor, but doctors who read these consider the descriptions to be pretty much on point and consistent with what became codified later. Um, there were no treatments that worked for mental illness at that time. I, I, I'm sad to say that we have still have very few treatments, but they tr the, part of what they did was they tried what they had, which was considered blasphemy. I mean, many people, the, the idea of moral mental health care in France was anti-medical. They thought it should be all psychological treatment, and they questioned what, giving medical treatment for these diseases. And that underlying issue of whether mental illness and addiction are medical conditions or psychological conditions is a fight we still have every day. And if you have the illnesses, you know how debilitating it can be for people to tell you it's all in your head. So interestingly, one of the challenges that I had, many of the things that Rush did obviously didn't help. Purging people is not going to help mental health. Uh, but interestingly, I had a fascinating discussion with Peter Weibrow, who used to be the head of the psychiatry department at Penn, now runs the Semmel Neuroscience Center at UCLA, um, because it occurred to me that using bloodletting and knocking people out who were psychotic was not, given what was available to Russia at the time, the worst idea in the world, and not so different that what we do when we use ECT or when we use uh, powerful uh, drugs at the beginning to stop a, a cycle of psychosis. Um, and I wasn't going to write that in the book unless somebody who was a doctor told me that I wasn't nuts for thinking it. And Weibrow, who had spent much of his career under a portrait of Benjamin Rush at Penn, immediately said, no, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, if you were a doctor, you understood enough about psychosis to know that it was a brain phenomenon that needed to be broken, and, and bloodletting was the only thing that you knew that would do that. It doesn't, it doesn't seem wrong to have tried to do that, and it probably was the only treatment they used that actually worked. Um, they had other treatments. Rush believed um, that a lot of mental illness had to do with blood flow to the brain, uh, which is funny because we now believe that now, uh, but during the 150, 200 years when people criticized Rush, no one believed that. So one of the things that he thought was that if you put a person on a wheel and you spun them around lightly to push more blood to their brain, they might get better. I don't think that worked. Um, and we don't really know what to do about blood flow in the brain. We know that when we look at PET scans, it is different for different diseases. So what I would say is the descriptions of the disease are unbelievably on point. The idea that especially suicidality and addiction can run through families and be generational. Um, he wrote about that in great detail. So if you spend enough time around people with it or who are mentally ill and you listen to them, because they were actually at Pennsylvania Hospital writing down what the people said, which was a really modern idea as well and they believed in psychological interventions and in medical interventions. But Rush even talked about things like, at what point in wellness can you say to somebody who believes something delusional that it's not true? If you say to them at the very beginning of their illness, it will be useless. But if you find that they are getting better, you may be able to challenge their provably wrong delusions as part of treatment. So that's a really kind of a cornerstone idea of, of psychiatric care that we still believe in today. So I would say that some of the treatments were ridiculous, as is true of almost all treatments for medicine during that time. I mean, part of the reason that we know uh, where Lewis and Clark uh, traveled across the country is because one of the big treatments of the day was purgative pills, so to make people throw up and have diarrhea. Uh, they had mercury in them, so part of the way that we know where Lewis and Clark went is because we know where Lewis and Clark went. 
Um, and um, so, you know, but mercury, you can say, oh my God, he gave people mercury. Well, guess what? Mercury was used in medicine up through the early 1900s. Um, but the descriptions of mental illness, if you read the book, I mean, it's part of every popular medical library of the greatest medical books ever written. And it's, it, what's fascinating is how much of it seems like it comes right out of it today, any psychology book or psychiatry book, because the, and I think there's something comforting about that, because you know, each generation makes up this idea that mental illness was created by the bad things that happened in that generation. There was no depression before the depression or, you know, the 60s or the 80s, you know. But, you know, I think there's something comforting in seeing that mental illness has existed in, among people during all of humankind. And every person who tries to describe it is amazing how consistent their descriptions of depression and mania and psychosis are. Uh, so I think that if you're interested in it, you would find his book. Do you have a copy of it here? Which one? Rush's book, um, uh, Medical Inquiries into Diseases of the Mind. It's very easily findable. You can download it for free online. Oh, I shouldn't say that. Um, <laughs> but get a bound version of it and buy it from Alex. Um, so it's actually, it's actually quite credible and quite interesting. And the cases are fascinating, um, including ones that have to do with war. He describes at great length two brothers who went to war together during the Revolutionary War who each took their own lives at different points of their uh, post-military experiences. Um, it, it, I mean, it's chilling how much it seems contemporary. Um, are there any other questions, or I have to stop talking? I think we're good. Can we give one more round of applause for Stephen? Thank you. I'd be happy to sign copies of the book, which just came out in paperback. Um, I'll be sitting here reading. You have been listening to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on all our newest author talks. After every event, there are limited quantities of signed copies of the featured books. Don't forget to grab your copy today. If you would like more information on Midtown Scholar Bookstore, please visit midtownscholar.com. The Midtown Scholar Bookstore author reading podcast is a free podcast and does not own the rights to any of the readings.